Hey everyone, Jace here. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to tell you about a campaign for an awesome creator-owned book that's going on right now over at Zoop. Axewilder John is the story of a savage journey into the heart of a man driven mad by love, by hate, by power. As he is hounded by hordes of relentless enemies who will stop at nothing to reclaim what John has stolen. This is a real passion project for writer-artist Nick Patera, as he's drawing inspiration from creators he loves, such as Frank Quietly, Jeff Darrow, and Mobius, among others. The book is also a deeply personal tale for Nick. He conceived a lot of the character and stories while his family was dealing with health challenges for his youngest daughter. Just like real life, the story is much more complicated than it might seem at first glance, and the axe-wielding barbarian at the heart of the story may be much, much more relatable than your average bloodthirsty warrior. The project's already fully funded, so go join the campaign, and you're guaranteed to get this full-color, oversized, hardcover edition. Just visit zoop.gg to check it out. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for your DC Spotlight for the week of May 31st, 2021. Can't believe it's almost June. Sixth month of the year. Year's half over. Been flying by. I know there's a ton of stuff I plan on doing this year that I haven't done. Uh, every year I say I'm going to work on my best of 20, you know, best of whatever year as I'm reading the books. I'm going to make little notes next to them and say, oh, I got to remember this moment or whatever. Yeah, haven't done it. Yeah. Haven't done it, but, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. Maybe next week, maybe this week, who knows if I'll find some time. But uh, that being said, it is a little bit of a smaller week. It is a, a fifth Tuesday for DC, and usually when you have that fifth release, it's it's a lighter schedule, which is great because, uh, man, sometimes we're on here for three hours talking to you guys about these books. Uh, and they also oftentimes use it to release annuals, and uh, this week is no different. We have a couple of annuals. We have the end of. Uh, Shadow War Omega, we have the end of the first arc of Hardware, which feels like it's gone on forever. Um, nice, nice House on the Lake returns, we get a reprint of the first couple issues of Batman Beyond the White Knight. We get a preview, I guess, in a way, of Dark Crisis with uh, Road to Dark Crisis. So yeah, there's a, there's a few books to talk about. What do you think about the week overall, Rocky? I'm just glad. It's okay. I, actually, as, as an annual week, I liked it. I, I uh... I actually really, I I really enjoyed Action Comics Annual. I really was quite impressed with it. Even the Batman Annual with Ghostmaker in it and Clown Hunter, I thought it was actually pretty good. We introduced some new characters. I, I'm I'm so happy that we got another chapter of Nice House on the Lake. I'm, I'm that story is really taking shape. And uh, the Road to Dark Crisis is inching closer, and a nice a nice sort of uh, end cap to Shadow War with Shadow War Omega. So overall, it's a short week, but I think overall a good week. I was. Uh, generally pleased with it yeah i i agree so let's go ahead and dive right in uh justice league road to dark crisis number one so this is an anthology there's a few stories in here we have team up which is actually a team up between john kent and nightwing which you know not not the first time we've seen this but the first time they've teamed up since their respective father figures have been killed uh so written by joshua williamson dan jurgens handles the pencils norm ratman on inks hi-fi on colors then Life of Purpose, uh, written by Jeremy Adams, Rosie Campe on art, 
Matt Herms does the colors. Survivors from writer Chuck Brown, Fico Asio on art. Sebastian Ching handles the colors on that one. The Pariah from Philip Kennedy Johnson on the script. Layla Del Duca on art. Jordi Blair on colors. Because the Night from Stephanie Phillips. Clayton Henry on art. Marcella Milo on colors. And then Josh Reed handles the letters for uh, for all of them. So, yeah, I mean, this was kind of a mixed bag for me. I didn't really feel, I mean, it says Road to Dark Crisis, but I didn't really feel like it, um, it's offering any like hints or clues about, you know, what Dark Crisis is really going to be. Uh, I did appreciate the perspective of Nightwing and John Kent in that first story. Um, and it's kind of a, that one more so than any, I guess, is, is a prelude because it's Dick Grayson and John Kent talking about, you know, their fathers being gone and also very being very meta and talking about the fact that, yeah, Dick Grayson, he's like, I'm not going to get too worried. They they always come back, right? So very meta in terms of, yeah, no comic book characters actually stay dead anymore, at least uh, doesn't seem like it. It also seems like John Kent's got a, a newer costume. I don't, I don't, that costume looks a little different than, than uh, any he's worn before. So I thought that that story was okay. Uh, the second one with Wally, uh, Iris West talking about Barry being missing, it leans more into that, which I guess, you know, we, it's been a while since we've heard any talk of Barry. Everything's been about the death of the Justice League lately. Uh, but we do know in the uh, in the Infinite Frontier, no, in the Justice League Incarnate uh, mini that we covered not too long ago that uh, Barry had gone to a, a different reality as well. And when the Justice League Incarnate went there to try to save them. He didn't even recognize them. So kind of leaning into that and leaning into the idea that, you know, Wally West is is very much embodies the hope of the DC universe, uh, as well as, you know, he's multiversal. He can travel uh, between multiverses. So obviously he's going to be a big part of um, the crisis. And then Hal Jordan is in the third story, uh, teaming up with Jackson Hyde, Hal being off Earth for a long time. It's weird to me that they killed John Stewart, not Hal Jordan. Like John Stewart has almost in recent years taken over as the primary Green Lantern, which I personally don't care for because I, I I just like Hal better. I know there's a lot of people that for them John Stewart is the Green Lantern because they discovered uh, DC uh, heroes through the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. So uh, I don't begrudge those people. It's fine. I expect Hal to play a big role. He's he's kind of like the senior statesman the hero with the most experience of, of the ones that are left. Um, so we'll see what kind of role he plays the pariah story. I wanted to like it more because I really, really like pariah as a character and a concept, but I thought the art was only okay. And I, I don't know the thing with pariah as a character, he's, he's, he's really challenging. Um, because if you're not careful, he can come across as just like this whiny, annoying character. Because uh, I remember when Crisis first came out, the, the original Crisis, people were complaining about that, uh, which I found to be ironic. They were whining about this guy that whined. Um, but it is a danger with the character. So, uh, yeah, he's a character that I really enjoy, but I didn't necessarily like that story that much. But I thought the final one um, from Stephanie Phillips, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan of Nocturna, and I think that she doesn't get enough use or she doesn't get used in necessarily in the right way. I think she has a lot more potential. So uh, I really enjoyed that, uh, that final story. So anyway, uh, what do you think of these four Rocky? Any of them stand out for you? What were your thoughts? 
well, frankly, uh, none of them really uh, stood out for me or being, none of them were really necessary at all as far as I was concerned. But I'll, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, uh, the first one dealing with uh, Nightwing and uh, J- John Kent. Basically, this is just a, a glorified conversation between the two that's completely unnecessary. We know that they have to step up to the plate because we know that Justice League is dead. Uh, there's some, you, you know, I guess, kudos for trying to establish the fact that, I mean, Nightwing shows some insecurity, in, or not insecurity, Nightwing shows that is in he's in denial. He refuses to believe that Batman's dead because you almost can't blame him because how many times does Batman have to be dead and Justice League have to be dead? It's almost like Nightwing is like he's like us, the readers. It's like where there's a there's a part of us that's always cynical when we hear that a big league team like the Justice League is dead because we we always um, it's like Superman said at the funeral of uh, Martian Manhunter all those years ago. Goes we now we now we simply pray for a resurrection and the resurrection always comes, <laughs> and so that's what's happening. Uh, and and so the conversation between John Kent and Nightwing. It's it's good because it establishes, I, I suppose, the rapport that we're expecting. But we've gotten this in previous issues already. We we've already uh, we've already kind of seen it, and uh, uh, we know that these are we know that these are people you know that John Kent looks up to Nightwing, and it, it it works well. But it's it's not absolutely necessary to read. It's fine, but it's not necessary. Uh, it's the best drawn. It's got the best art out of all of them, and so I didn't mind it. They reminisce about when Superman died and they talk about the past, but it's really not necessary. For me, I'm more interested in, in the dark crisis. This is, while, while on the surface this looks like character work, it's, it's not character work that drives the plot in my mind. And not enough to really satisfy me. Uh, the, uh, the next story, uh, dealing with Flash and uh, Wally West and, and, and uh, Iris Allen, talking about Barry Allen. That, uh, this was by far the worst art. I, I, I really didn't like the art. I thought this was phoned in the art. I didn't like it. It was com- it was a complete waste of time. It, it didn't really elevate. Didn't give us any clues about. It didn't form. It didn't move the story forward. I'm not. I'm. I'm. You know. It almost arguably made me less excited about Dark Crisis. No, I mean knowing that that Wally West. We already know that Wally West. At the end of Jeremy Adams' <laughs> uh, last Flash story, it was exciting because him and Wally West and. Wallace West are off to look for Barry, and and now now we have this side story with them taking on Giganta in in frankly a, a ridiculous story. I mean, uh, this actually interrupts it, and we it doesn't serve either character, and it doesn't move the narrative forward. This is a cash grab, plain and simple. And um, now the uh, I, I enjoyed more the Green Lantern, the Hal Jordan, and Jackson Hyde story uh, because I. It, it, because we actually get some reaction from Hal Jordan. This is something that is actually new. We, this is the first time we're seeing Hal Jordan's reaction. Hal Jordan finds out for the first time from Jackson Hyde of all people that uh, the Justice League is dead because there's this, there's this, there's this like marine life sort of for, uh, alien life form that's crashing into the Earth's ocean, and Hal Jordan wants the Justice League's help, but of course they're not around. Jackson Hyde helps him. Uh, sort of befriend this alien and alleviate the threat. But, and in the, in the process of that, he has a conversation with Jackson Hyde where, uh, despite knowing, being told that the Justice League is dead, he's got to put his feelings aside and, and, and get the job done with Jackson Hyde. And then it basically ends with him just saying, okay, I'm going to go off and I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Again, is it absolutely necessary that we, that we know that this, 
that we are we're privy to this? No. We can find hell. Jordan can find out about the Justice League in Dark Crisis number one. Uh, but again, it's at least it's something. Um, the Pariah story, I think, is uh, adds one element here that I think is interesting and moves the plot forward for Dark Crisis because it gives us motivation for Pariah that we've not seen before, and that is this suggests more so than what we've already suspected, that Pariah is a victim of being taken over and manipulated by the dark, by the darkness, by the great darkness. Because it, for me anyway, and maybe maybe you feel differently, Jace, but I feel, I was always unsure it was Pariah just insane or was he corrupted by the dark, by the great darkness? Or was he manipulating the great darkness? Or which was it was a combination of both? It would appear as if that uh, Pariah uh, in his, you know, because he lost the world in the original crisis and, and he was doomed to bear witness to the destruction of the multiverse. Uh, the guilt that he suffers over that, the great darkness, it, it, is, it appears here, was fermenting the hallucination in his mind, uh, perverting him to try to, and I believe the great darkness is now utilizing Pariah as, as its agent. Uh, as its head agent to to create the great dark army, and I think that's that's what I got out of that. So I felt I got something out of that story. Um, Nocturna, the Stephanie Phillips story. It's interesting. Just for those who are fans of Nocturna in the Suicide Squad, I'm pretty sh certain this is a different Nocturna, the Nocturna in Suicide Squad that is currently, you know, probably still making out with uh, Connor Kent, or pardon me, Match, not Connor Kent, but Match. Uh, that's a Nocturna from another Earth. So I think this is the Nocturna from actually our Earth, Designate Zero. If uh, And uh, I actually liked it because uh, I, I don't believe this is the same Nocturna that was in Suicide Squad. But she's, it suggests that she's probably, she's on our side. But this Nocturna, uh, while she's going to be a member of the secret Society of Secret Villains with, with Deathstroke, she's likely going to end up betraying them and probably end up being on the side of good because we know that Deathstroke, now that he's been resurrected, uh, or he, <laughs> we're going to be getting to that in Shadow War Omega. Uh, we know that with Deathstroke, uh, spoiler alert, uh, surprise, surprise, Deathstroke is back. That that was in Solicits. But uh, uh, Nocturne is likely going to play a role in perhaps betraying the secret society and is planting the seeds of that ultimate betrayal, which will play a role in a dark crisis because we know that Deathstroke maybe goes a little bit crazy upon his resurrection, which we're going to get to when we review Shadow War Omega. So all in all, I didn't think this was necessary, but it, like anything, because you and I are both avid DC readers, it's nice to know this information, but it's not absolutely essential. And if you're budgeting your money, you can skip this. Oh, sorry, you're on mute. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm curious, what makes you think it's a different... Nocturna, why can't it be the same one that we saw in the Suicide Squad? Uh, I guess I just, uh, I guess it could, uh, it, it could be. I, I guess I just, it just seemed to me to be odd that if, if it's the same Nocturna, then why, where's Match? Why wouldn't he be around? Um, because he's, uh, you know, but, but no, you, you could be right. Uh, I just, you know, you I just could didn't have... know if there was something I, something I missed. Yeah, very well could no. be different yeah. or, or not. Who knows? <laughs> That's the problem with DC continuity these days. Yeah, everything matters. Everything counts, but leaves us uh, a little confused sometimes. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, Hardware Season One, Number Six. This is the final issue of the first arc. Uh, for some reason, we don't have a credits page, uh, but we do know that Brandon Thomas is the writer, 
Dennis Cowan does the pencils, Bill Sienkiewicz on inks, Chris Sotomayor on colors. Sorry, I don't know who the letterer is. Uh, but this is, uh, yeah, this is the end of the first arc. It felt pretty satisfying. What'd you think, Rob? Um, sorry, I'm just a little bit behind you here. Uh, yep. I was, uh, you know, it's funny. I, uh, first just, uh, talk, talk, talking in terms of, uh, artistically, I can't, uh, forgive me as, as you mentioned, I guess it's uh Cowan on the art. I, I feel that the art got a little bit sloppier this final issue in parts. So I was a little bit disappointed in that. It feels rushed in parts. But uh, having said that, though, there's enough there that uh, this is action-packed. I mean, I will say this. This, this definitely feels action-packed. But uh, artistically, it did, feel, it did feel a little bit uh, rushed to me. And some of the pages, I, I think, look, you know, because he's fighting. I guess he's fighting this, the character, I call him, I guess... I can't remember the character's name, but he's like multiple man. He duplicates himself. And, uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, some of the pages I, I thought maybe looked a little bit, uh, that they could have been a little bit, you know, the line work could have been a little bit more fine. It seemed a little bit sloppy, but, uh, the, uh, this was a, a significantly issue long action sequence. And it's, it's really good action between, uh, between hardware and this multiple man, whatever his name is. And, um, uh, this this sort of ends this uh, there is a resolution of the story arc so this does uh, after after this is the this is the sixth issue and so we got a we got a good ending to season one and um, I it, it it wraps up I, I would say maybe a little conveniently uh, but uh, there there's still a, maybe a little bit too conveniently but frankly I'm I'm kind of glad we got a resolution there. Because I, I think that that's what this that what this series needs, and um, uh, this is this still remains firmly in third place for me. Uh, I'm, I'm still I still put uh, Icon and Rocket, uh, my favorite hard my favorite milestone title, followed by uh, uh, followed by well actually I would put Duo there now, followed by Static. And then and Hardware here, and then there's uh, there's another one that I'm forgetting. There's that Group one. Um, Blood Syndicate. Thank you, Crime Syndicate. That that's uh, Blood, Blood Syndicate. Blood Syndicate. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I would actually say Hardware's actually my my least favorite, but that that's not an in, that's not an insult. It's just it's just not as uh, just quite not as compelling here. There's something that that this series has been missing in my mind that it hasn't quite gelled for me, and maybe it seems maybe maybe it's because it's. It rem- it just seems a little bit maybe tropey or cliche a little bit, or but um, I I don't know I, I I'm having a hard time. Uh, uh, it, it just seems you know with the with the bad corporate white guy and the and the and his and his the, the relationship that the corporate machinations it seems a little bit off. Guys guys ripped off. He he works for this corporation. He's betrayed by his partner and then he's sort of uh, scapegoated and then he comes back in a suit of order and wins the day. Seems a little bit tropier to me and I didn't really find that it had too many, uh, I wasn't caught off guard. There wasn't any, it, it didn't uh, subvert any of my expectations in, in, in a way. It was, it was kind of, kind of predictable and I would have liked a little bit more uh, unpredictability there, but Overall, it, it, it served its uh, purpose, and there was some good character work. I will say that there's really good character work, and I like the relationship between the characters. So what do you think? Yeah, actually, I think that's one of the weak spots for me. Um, there is some good character work 
for it feels like everybody but Curtis Metcalf. I feel like he's the main character, you know, hardware. Uh, and I feel like we got less character work of him than than anybody. Like I still feel like I don't know who Curtis Metcalf is. It very much reads like an, an origin story, sets up all the pieces. It it pays homage to what came before in in you know hardware the first time around. But it feels a little paint by the numbers, like you said, a little tropey. But it's not terrible. But it's just it's not breaking any new ground. Now what I'm hoping is that. Brandon Thomas is like, okay, we need to establish who, uh, who all the characters are. You know, who are the players? What's the the setting? What's the background uh, between Hardware and um, Alva and and whatnot? Curtis Metcalf and Alva and and um, uh, Asher Sims and whatnot. Um, so that going forward, then if he wants to flip everything on its head and and really veer away from what happened uh, in in the first go round of Hardware, he can do that. Uh, but it, it very much felt like this was kind of, you know, doing your homework, so to speak, you know, or eating your vegetables. Let's get the basics down. It's not a bad comic, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't b- break any ground. And the other nitpick I have about it, and I've had this, I've said this throughout, it feels like there's so much story that Brandon Thomas is trying to squeeze in here. And we know from uh, experience, Brandon has come on the show and said as much, that oftentimes the hardest uh, challenge for him is, is getting his story to fit in the, the pages that are allotted, mm. right? Because he usually has so much more that he wants to say. And we see that, like, especially when uh, Curtis Metcalf on hardware defeats the, the guy that can multiply himself. His name is Reprise. Reprise. Which, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah. It's mentioned like <coughs> one time in, in the two issues he's in. And if you, you blink, you'll miss it. Um, but once he defeats him and then, uh, a couple of Curtis Metcalf's al- allies show up, and his uh, his uh, har- armor, the hardware armor, is completely deleted of uh, power of energy, and he's struggling to even walk in it. And they tell him, you know, hey, you defeated the guy; it's okay, you can stand down. And Metcalf's like, no, I've got to go, I've got to go get Alva. And they're like, no, just stop, listen, listen to what we're trying to say to you. He says, no. I'm going to go get Alva. And so he says no to them. That's the scene that we get on the final panel of one page. And then on the next page, he's in Alva's office. We see some security and whatnot, like knocked out in the elevator behind him. We see some blood. He's holding some sort of weapon. I don't know where he got it from. Um, And Alva's just there with a gun. It's like, you feel like there's a page or two missing. (laughs) It's like, Again, the pacing, it's very choppy at times. Um, and I had to, it, it pulls me out of the story. I'm, I'm like, wait, what did I miss here? He's, he's walking into the building uh, or, or he's in the lobby. He's walking toward the elevators and they're, and they're telling him to stop and he's saying no. And then next thing we know, he's in the office. We don't see the fight on the elevator. We don't know where he gets that weapon. Uh, I, again, I understand the need for it uh, in terms of there just wasn't enough room to put everything in that Brandon Thomas wanted to, but man, it still feels a little bit choppy and I, I got to call it out. So yeah. I do, um, I should, I would just add that I do think there's strong female characters in this narrative. Like, Oh yeah. I, I thought that as a compliment, I, I, I do, he does some better, there's some stronger female characters and they have a lot of agency in the, in, in the storyline. And I thought that worked quite well. And as, as a compliment, uh, you know, as, as a supporting cast. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And one of the nitpicks I had going back to talk about Blood Syndicate, written by uh, 
Jeffrey Thorne, who is African-American, Brandon Thomas, African-American as well. But I mentioned it when we talked about Blood Syndicate, about how much slang there was in that book uh, and how it felt a little cliched. Um, and and I also talked about how the, the problem with using a, a bunch of slang is that it dates the book. You know, it sets it in a certain period of time. It's like if you go back and read like the early ghostwriter books that Gary Friedrich wrote, mm. you know, it's all like groovy and far out and whatever. It doesn't it doesn't read very well. Um Brandon Thomas doesn't fall into that that trap here. So yeah, there are very strong female characters, very strong persons of color, and he doesn't fall into that trap of like jive talk or what have you. So I appreciate that as well. So I, I'm very hopeful for the future of this title. I feel like now that we've gotten the basics out of the way, Brandon Thomas is going to uh, be able to kind of he's not gonna be beholden to the past. Not that he necessarily was, but you do have to kind of, you know, do your due diligence. And, and kind of establish who the characters are and whatnot. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential going forward. I do agree with Rocky. It's it's it at this point. It's the, the least compelling of the milestone books, and for that reason, it's also my least favorite. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Or maybe I'll put it right there with Blood Syndicate, Icon of Rocket, definitely number one. Static number two, Duo probably three because we've only had one issue, um, and then Blood Syndicate Hardware kind of bringing up the rear, but uh, definitely room for improvement and that's not to say like rocky said that's not to say they're bad i'm just enjoying the others more right now so uh okay up next we have batman number 2022 20, annual number one uh under new management written by ed brisson art by john timms colors by rex locus lettered by clayton cowles this is 100 percent a Ghostmaker story or a batman incorporated story if you want to put it that way <laughs> um you know Ghostmaker. it's 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 actually a pretty funny scene uh, Batman basically summons the members of Batman Incorporated, those that are left, to come to Ghostmaker's ship. Uh, and then he tells them, hey, I'm turning over the um, the day-to-day operations of Batman Incorporated to Ghostmaker. Now, unbeknownst to Batman, Ghostmaker had confronted these uh, other Batman before. Uh, and the reason he did that is because Batman had offered to Ghostmaker previously, hey – I want you to head up Batman Incorporated. Ghostmaker wasn't interested. And the reason Batman wants to do that, he's, he sell, tells Ghostmaker, hey, you've done a great job cleaning up crime, right? Like you go into a, you do what you say you're going to do. You go into a city, you clean things up, you get rid of all the corruption, crime goes down, and it's a safer place. But then you leave and you move on. And Ghostmaker says, yeah, I'm giving him a clean slate, another chance to, you know, to make better decisions. Batman says, no, what you're actually doing is you're creating a power vacuum other criminal enterprises come in, other corrupt polit- uh, politicians. Sometimes it ends up just as bad, if not worse, than before. And Ghostmaker's like, well, you know, he doesn't want to take responsibility for that. He's like, that's not my fault that they they can't maintain the status quo. And Batman's like, it's a fundamental flaw in what you're doing. What you're doing is incomplete. And what you need is an organization like Batman Incorporated, where you leave somebody behind that maybe doesn't have quite the uh, ability or strength to clean things up, but they could maintain, they could keep, uh, you know, bad elements from, from coming in and establishing and becoming powerful. Um, and so that's what Batman has wanted Ghostmaker to do for a long time. Ghostmaker's always, always refused for whatever reason. Now he's thinking that, yeah, he's willing to do it. He's willing to run Batman incorporated, but in, in between this time, in between this, uh, this offer and him accepting it, he had gone out and he'd, uh, located a lot of these members of the Batman Incorporated and fought against them uh, just to kind of basically gauge how uh, capable they were. So they're not real happy to see him. And when Batman says, yeah, he's taken over uh, Batman Incorporated, they're like, wait, what? 
like this is the guy that they have beef with, you know? So it, it makes for um, a little bit of humor here and there. Uh, Ghostmaker basically saying, yeah, cause I'm, you know, I'm the best. We know he's an arrogant character, uh, but in a way it's part of what makes him interesting. Uh, but he go, he also says, yeah, I'm also the richest person that Batman knows. <laughs> Batman's like, yeah, that's fair. You know, he did, not only does he not have the time and the resources anymore, he doesn't have uh, the monetary resources either to devote to Batman Incorporated to keep it uh, to keep it going. And that's how Lex Luthor almost was able to take it over recently. So it's a it's uh, it's pretty interesting. That's about the first half of the story. The second half, um, Ghostmaker chooses his team. He sends some down to what he calls the miners. He says, go back to your, you know, your home city, your local um place where you've been doing good and keep doing good. And maybe, you know, I'll call you up for a mission here or there and we'll see what you got. And then there's going to be a, an international team. That's a little bit more of the, the hands-on taking on uh, bigger threats. And the first threat they take on is in Chechnya um, where apparently uh, Lex Luthor established uh, a branch of Batman incorporated with uh, a, a member of Batman incorporated called the gray wolf. And when they go there, Kazbek is the name of the town and things are not quite what they seem. It has to do with Lazarus resin and some uh, some people being mildly dosed because this guy who's a, a, a medical doctor or a scientist in, in one of their prisons there um, who needed more funding. And so he thought, I'm going to I'm going to infect the townspeople and that will cause uh, Lex Luthor to be interested to come here and to invest funding. And it worked like his plan worked kind of an it. it issue of the ends justifying the means. I, I don't agree with it. I'm, I'm kind of an ends justify the means guy, but man, you don't, you don't poison innocent people. Uh, well then obviously when Lex Luthor was defeated, everything went completely sideways because Luthor wasn't there. The, the, the funding dried up. This guy wasn't able to cure anybody of, uh, of what had happened. But when the uh, Batman incorporated team gets there, that's not what the scientists tells them. They say this gray wolf's the guy that's captured them all. He's keeping them in prison. He's the bad guy. But really, what the Gray Wolf is doing is he's he's got all these people uh, imprisoned in the prison, these innocent people, because they're so violent because of the Lazarus uh, resin that they'll attack anybody. And so he's got them all locked down for their own for their own safety. But what's cool is in the course of this mission, while they're finding this out, the Gray Wolf manages to defeat like three or four members of Batman Incorporated. And in, in the end, Ghostmaker's like, man. Uh, I hate to admit it, but these guys are pretty good. You know, I fought against them and maybe I played it off when I talked to Batman uh, about how good they were and said they, they sucked, but they're pretty good. And you took out like three of them. So, you know, we could really use your help. Um, and so at the end of the day, the gray wolf joins the, uh, you know, the more legitimate version of Batman incorporated here. And this is all spinning into a new series. Just got announced today uh, that there's a new series written by the same writer that wrote this Ed Brisson, uh, a new Batman incorporated series that's coming out later this, this year. So I'm excited for it. Not necessarily because I like the concept of Batman incorporated. I could kind of take it or leave it to be honest with you. It's a Grant Morrison thing. I'm not a big fan of the Grant Morrison run on Batman. Um, but I'm a big fan of Ed Brisson. So uh, I'm curious what it's going to be like with, uh, with him doing it. Um, will we, will we get some bat, you know, return of Batwing, some other characters that we've seen in the past. Not really excited about clown hunter or phantom two as <laughs> yeah. ghostmaker wants to change yeah. his call uh call sign to or whatever um he's just a character that can just go away as far as, far as i'm concerned he, i feel like nobody knows what to do with him he's still not interesting 
at all. Even Ghostmaker at one point in this issue like fed up with him. Like, look, if you don't want the training, go. You're free to go, dude. Like, I didn't want to train you in the first place. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, go away, Clown Hunter. I didn't want to read about you in the first place. So uh, I kind of hope he does go away. But I'm, I'm very intrigued by this Gray Wolf character because and, and, we don't know much about him. Um, yeah. But he seems very formidable and also very noble. And I, I like that. I'm very intrigued by him. So uh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought the John Timms art was pretty solid. And it felt like a big, big story. We've got 40 pages here in this annual. So it's pretty solid. What do you think, Rob? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, to pose another question, I mean, how do you, how do you publish another Batman book, but get a, but, but not have it be a Batman book? Uh, well, you know, call it, call it Batman Incorporated and Batman's not actually in it at all. It's Ghostmaker and Ghostmaker, let's face it, is sort of like just more of a cockier, more mentally well-adjusted Batman, uh, than, than Batman. And, uh, well, maybe the jury's even out on that because if you're going to take on a character like Clown Hunter is your sidekick. Maybe you've got issues of your own as well. But I, I like this. I actually Ghostmaker has grown on me. Uh, I actually I, I enjoy him as a character. I kind of like the fact that this is sort of a, a great way to get. I'm I, I agree with you. I love Gray uh, the Gray Wolf. I think he's a very interesting character. Lots of potential here. I think he's got a cool design, an awesome mask. He's got a cool looking tattoo on his arms. Like I mean, he just looks very very powerful. And Ghostmaker, of course, as you aptly pointed out, recognize that fact because uh, he could took out he easily took out three other members of Batman Incorporated. Uh, I I sort of like the premise here uh, because you know on the one hand. Um, I like m more than one commentator on the Batman mythology is that I kind of miss just Batman by himself. This, this idea of a growing Batman family, part of me is kind of, I long for the days where there was just fewer members. And so now we, we got all the members of the Batman family. Now we got Batman Incorporated, but I kind of like the fact that Batman Incorporated is elsewhere. They're not in Gotham. Batman is sort of, you know, he, he doesn't even control the money of it. It's Ghostmaker. Ghostmaker and him have similar sensibilities, but Ghostmaker's in charge and Batman can sort of, he trusts Ghostmaker enough to do his own thing. Now Batman can do his own thing. So I, I like the idea that we're sort of getting the best of both worlds. And uh, that's sort of like uh, why, you know, we had Batman sort of like with the outsiders, you know, Batman is always around, but he's not. So the outsiders can shine and hopefully I'll be blunt. I want Batman incorporated, even though Batman's not in it. I'm kind of glad he's not because I want these characters to thrive in their own right. The irony is, is that you got to call it Batman incorporated to get people to buy the damn comic because that seems to be what the market suggests. Uh, but I, I enjoy this. You did a very good job uh, summarizing the plot line. I don't need to go over it again. I just, uh, I quite, uh, I enjoyed it. I love Ghostmaker. I love Grey Wolf. And this, I found myself surprised at how much I enjoyed this annual because I often don't enjoy annuals. But this was a good story. And it's, I credit that to Ghostmaker. Ghostmaker, there's something about his cocky attitude, the way Ed Brisson writes him. I find it even bearable. Even his, I, I hate Clown Hunter. And yet the rapport between Ghostmaker and Clown Hunter, I kind of like the way that Ghostmaker treats Clown Hunter like shit. I kind of like that. Yeah. Treat, you know what I mean? I like that because I don't like Clown Hunter. I treat him like shit too. And yet, goddamn, if Clown Hunter, if that, if that's a character that grows on me, that's going to be a tribute, I think, to the character of Ghostmaker because Ghostmaker is is a holds no hold no bars teacher. He'll teach you, but you're gonna you're gonna learn the hard way. And Clown Hunter is learning the hard way because Ghostmaker does not go easy on him. And I got to tell you, this is uh, you know Ghostmaker is uh, turning into one of the most pleasant surprises of of the year so far.
Yeah, I think that uh, you're 100 percent right about Clown Hunter. He he thinks he he thinks he knows more than he knows, and he thinks he's more capable than he is. And Ghostmaker doesn't buy that not for a second. He's yeah. like, no, you suck. You, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to pull any punches. You know, I'm not going to be yeah. not here. You suck, and I can make you better. And if you don't want to train, then go home. End yeah. of story. You know, yeah, that's exactly how I treat him too. It's like, hey, dude, <laughs> it's this way, or you're going to get yourself killed. You want to get yourself killed? Then be my guest. There's the door. Go get yourself killed. Uh, but I, I am also really excited to have Ed Brisson over at, at DC. Much like Matthew Rosenberg, you know, he made a name for himself uh, on the independent scene and then did some work at Marvel. I don't, I, what, you know, I don't, I don't know the politics of it. I don't know, you know, what's going on edit, edit, you know, editorial wise or whatever. But if I'm Marvel, I don't let these two guys go. I don't know why they're not getting work at Marvel, but it's to DC's benefit that they are uh, over at, at DC now doing doing work. So, uh, really excited for that. Yeah. Well, I agree. Uh, okay. Uh, up next, uh, Shadow War Omega, the final chapter here of this uh, Shadow War, the war between Talia and Deathstroke, written by Joshua Williamson. We have art in this issue by Steven Segovia for the first 30 pages, and then Mike Henderson handles pages 31 through 35. Howard Porter does 36 through 40. Colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Troy Petrie. So we saw at the end of last issue that the um, imposter Deathstroke stood revealed as geoforce uh <laughs> and now we in case you haven't been following along and seen uh just how crappy markovia has had it l- lately and how you can understand how geoforce could could um do what he's done uh we get a little recap in the beginning that kind of explains that so uh take it away rock well, uh, I gotta say, like as much as uh, we commented before uh, when we reviewed the last issue chapter of Shadow War, that uh, it was sort of uh, sort of spelled out that Geoforce was the enemy. But I was surprised. I was surprised uh, reading other reviews and listening to other people commentate on social media that it, it a lot of people really it did catch a lot of people by surprise. Uh, and I guess I guess Geoforce isn't that popular a character, maybe as well known as I maybe thought he was. After all, he wasn't a member of the last iteration of the Outsiders. And uh, in any event, a lot of people sort of thought it was a thought it was kind of a hokey and kind of a joke. And uh, in any event, I, I kind of chuckle uh, because in this opening pages here, it shows it shows uh, you know Brian Markov you know talking to. Uh, He's he's talking to I guess the the upper elites of Markovia at a time when they sold Markovia to Leviathan because Leviathan literally purchased the country. If you can imagine buying a country, as absurd as that is, it's one of the things why the whole notion was kind of an absurd story plot point anyway. But uh, literally, Leviathan at that time under the control of Mark Shaw. Uh, bought Markovia, and it's revealed here that Brian Markov was just more of a. I get the sense that Markovia was more of a maybe a that he's just a figurehead that was maybe more of a constitutional monarchy of some kind, uh, and Brian Markov was just more of a figurehead. Uh, unfortunately, before he could do anything to really prevent the takeover by Leviathan, Leviathan it was taken over, and and then Marco and then it, Markovia was renamed Leviathan. And then it was destroyed uh, as the entire world's heroes sort of converged upon Leviathan, former Markovia, and and and, and destroy and basically all these people got killed. It suggested that a lot of people died, and 
there, there's kind of an embarrassing scene where Geoforce is going to go to the rescue and, you know, Geoforce will save Markovia. And all of a sudden he gets slammed by, ironically enough, he gets slammed by a rock, which is ironic because uh, Geoforce, of course, controls geology and controls the Earth. And he ends up getting slammed by the Earth itself. So he, he utterly fails to save his home country. And... And this sort of reinforces what, what fits in really nicely. I mean, it, this this is a history that it's very easy to understand why Brian Markoff is an angry, pissed-off guy and why he wants to kill Talia and Deathstroke. Deathstroke corrupted and had inappropriate relations with his younger sister, Tara, uh, Tara Markoff, who was Tara in the in the famous Judas, uh, in the, the Judas contract, Teen Titans storyline by Jean, George Perez, the late George Perez and uh, Marv Wolfman. And, of course, now losing the entire country to uh, Leviathan, which is, was, of course, now was controlled by Talia, and, and now is Talia has regained control. It's really understandable to see why he is as pissed off as he is. Now, once we get that explanation at the beginning, uh, really the, the, the bulk of this issue is just, uh, uh, I think the heart and soul of this issue is, is it, it switches to uh, just a long protracted discussion between Brian Markoff, Batman, and Damien. And of course, Talia is there as well. And there's some really good character moments here. I think um, uh, Joshua Williamson here, he, he does a really good job, in particular, I think, with, with Damien here. I, under Joshua Williamson, Damien has become a character. I used to hate Damien. He, I used to, I love him. I loved him under Grant Moore. Uh, Grant Morrison cr- basically created Damien. I always say Peter Tomasi made me love Damien Wayne. And then all of a sudden Damien Wayne became a permanent jerk. And, and for the longest time I didn't like Damien Wayne. And then I couldn't, you know, Joshua Williamson comes along and through the series, Robin series and through Deathstroke and through this Shadow War Omega, Damien has become more of a hero in his own right. And there's a very powerful point in this, uh, in this issue where Damien insists on being the one to confront Geoforce and stop him. And in a, in a very significant moment, he has a, he has a moment where he confronts uh, Geoforce and he, he screams at him and he, and he tells him that heroes do not, heroes don't kill. And uh, that is huge for this character of Damian Wayne because how often I mean it's it, Damian was always a broken record I mean Damian was a guy that was keeping you know he, he had a he had a basement where he's keeping supervillains locked in uh, without even Batman knowing I mean Damian is is rumored to become Batman 666 in the future there's rumor that Damian is the mini Hitler uh, there's a there's a there was a rumor in the 31st century under the Bendis storyline that that uh, potentially uh, potentially Damian could become the Hitler of the future uh, and then there's another one that says maybe John Kent and so the the question of Damian's future and his moral upbringing and his and his uh, moral fortitude has always been something that has leaned toward a, a strong suggestion of darkness this is a huge sign and a and a and a great jumping off point for Williamson because he's his 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 last issue of Robin is coming up and so for D- to leave the character of Damian Wayne with him saying essentially heroes don't kill that's an about shift and a significant one and a welcome one in my mind for Damian because we can finally get the the young teenager with with a little bit more of a a, a, a sturdier head on his shoulders and one that's so drowned in darkness and uh, I think it's uh, I I it's welcome, and I, I just I love this issue because of that, and all the action surrounding it just really capped it off for me. So, uh, what do you think of it? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you about Damien 100%. Um, although I never did like like him. Uh, <laughs> there was never that part where I liked him and then didn't like him. Um, but I, I did, I will admit that I did start to like, he, it did feel like he was maturing uh, in the hands of, of whoever was, you know, writing Batman. It was, it was through various people. And then we, we talked about it when the Robin series started, it felt like Joshua Williamson had dematured him, had made him more immature uh, again, but all credit to Williamson by the end of the, the Lazarus Island uh, death tournament or whatever it was called. uh, Damien was even further along, like he brought him back. Uh, and and we see him kind of like you said put the, put the period on the end of the sentence here with Damien knocking out uh, Geoforce and saying heroes don't kill because yeah there was a time that Damien never would have said that um, that's not what he believed that's not what he was brought up to believe not what he was you know trained to believe or whatnot so it's great it's great to see that uh, and uh, hopefully Joshua Williamson can continue to to mature Damien if anything and I, I hate to bring this up I really do because it's been beaten to death and we're not going back again. It's clear. Uh, I said that as soon as he got his own title, Superman, son of Kal-El. But one of the things that, that kind of bugs me about this is look at the stories we're getting of, of Damien maturing, right? In these, in these formative years, this is what we miss with John Kent. Yeah. This kind of stuff that we're never going to get with John Kent because they skipped all of it. And it just sucks. Um, Cause even a character that I don't like Damien I'm I'm seeing growth and I'm seeing you know maturity and I'm seeing interesting stories and uh, you know I'm, I'm growing to like him as a character and to respect him as a character. Um, I already liked John Kent, you know. So how much more would I have liked him? I like John Kent less now than I did when he was you know the ten or twelve year old or, or what have you. So again, for whatever reason they made that decision, they made it. We know the genie is not going back in the bottle, but man, this is the kind of thing that that this is why people are upset, you know, cause they're not getting stories like this with John Kent. Uh, the other thing that I really enjoyed about this was just seeing Geoforce. Um, cause I, I have a little bit of mixed feelings. We talked about it a little bit last time. Geoforce has never been like a really compelling character. <laughs> and like you mentioned, when uh, you first started talking about this issue, how people didn't even think of Geoforce as a possibility for being the fake Deathstroke, even though, you know, you and I had pretty much, you know, made up our minds on it and made the most sense. Um, but people kind of forget about him because he's not that memorable. He's sort of a generic character, not that interesting. This does make him more interesting, if not a little – like, I, again, I have mixed feelings. I think, man, if somebody did that to my country, you know, it, it, the country where I was Prince, I would be, like, pissed off too. Isn't he justified in this and in, in wanting – you know, millions of people have died. Millions yeah. <laughs> uh, of his people have died. Um, and so isn't he justified in killing Ra's al Ghul and wanting to kill Talia, you know? It's never okay to kill. Like, like I get it. I, I can see both sides. But uh, it does make him a more interesting character, I think. Seeing him use his powers in ways we never have before, like him creating the, like the big golem, I thought was really cool. Uh, and then in the end, he you know he ends up captured. Damien knocks him out or whatnot. And we see him uh, in prison, I think, at Bell Rev. So immediately you think, well, you know what's going to happen to him. Uh, we're going to be seeing him in the pages of whatever new version of Suicide Squad. It's going to uh, be coming out, which I think is kind of interesting because in a lot of ways, Geoforce reminds me of Rick Flagg, just like generic, uh, you know, square jawed hero type guy, mm. right? Without anything really that interesting. That That's kind of Rick Flagg to me. It's ne- never really been much in my mind that's compelling about Rick Flagg. 
Same thing with Geoforce, but now he does have a little bit of an edge. Mm. Uh, a little bit interesting. Yeah. And then um, as far as Talia killing Slade Wilson, you know, that was a pretty big shock in uh, in the issue. Yeah, I killed him, whatever. But of course, he doesn't stay dead um, <laughs> because the members of the uh, Secret Society managed to grab his corpse and take it to uh, a Lazarus pit, dump it in, and he comes walking out, still sands the eye, the one eye that will never heal. Um, and he talks about uh, having a contract to finish and how they're going to kill everybody and how that's going to tie in to Dark Crisis. You don't really think of Deathstroke as this cosmic, you know, super-powered character that's going to have, you know, big ramifications on a, a big cosmic event like Dark Crisis, but Joshua... Williamson has been writing Deathstroke Incorporated. He's writing Dark Crisis. He clearly has an affinity for Slade Wilson. And some of these other characters that Slade is in charge of on Secret Society of Supervillains are that power level where you do think they'll have something to do with it. And then there's also some hints that the the demon, what's, what's, what's his name? Nezmu? Or Nezha. The demon yeah. Nezha. In, uh... yeah, Nezha, yeah. Uh, we know that he's got some more control over Lazarus pits and resurrection and whatnot than he has in the past. He's less restrained or, or what have you. Um, so is this Slade Wilson that comes climbing out of the Lazarus pit? Is he in any way influenced by Nessa or not? Like we still don't know that. And then the other thing we got to mention is it's already been announced that there's a new, um, a new Batman and Robin series coming. So not only did Damien say heroes don't kill and, and was the one that kind of dealt the final blow um, that, that knocked out uh, Geoforce, he also reconciled with his father in a lot of ways because um, they've been estranged for a while ever since Bruce found out what Damien was doing uh, when he was leading the Teen Titans and he was imprisoning villains and whatnot. So, yeah, a lot of ramifications from this uh, event. Um and you think about like a, a tight event. This was what I think five, six issues, maybe it, yeah. whatever amount of issues. It was less issues than Trial of the Amazons, yeah, or War for Earth three. But yet, it mattered more. Like we got much more consequences and many more seeds planted for stories going forward. It, it was so, better character work as well. It was. Uh, yeah. I thought it was more exciting. I thought there was more revelations. I I, I thought it was very well done. And I just want to add your comments about uh, uh, Geoforce. I personally think that if there's any survivors of the country of Markovia, I believe the people of Markovia would demand the release of Geoforce. I believe he will be released. I believe that his diplomatic status will be reinstated. I believe he'll go back to Markovia. And frankly, I can't think of a better character that could become the de facto, I don't want to call it the de facto Dr. Doom of the DC Universe, but Maybe I'll call him that anyway. Uh, but I, I think that he is an infinitely more interesting character now uh, than he ever was as Geoforce. Now, maybe even a name change is 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 appropriate for 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 Geoforce because uh, he might. I don't see him being in Bell Reeve Prison for long. I don't want to see this character becoming a member of the Suicide Squad. Uh, he deserves better than that. He deserves uh, because what I I refuse to believe that Markovia is completely destroyed or or it's Leviathan. But I think I think Markovia is going to be reinstated to its former glory. I see. I think the future looks really bright for uh, for for Geoforce for Brian Markov and. I, I think the storytelling potential for the character is just huge, and I, I really hope that DC builds on it. Yeah, I do too. I don't really want to see him in Suicide Squad either, but it wouldn't surprise me to, to see it. 
I don't know that he'd rise the level of Dr. Doom because he's not that egotistical. Um, I see him more as like a Black Adam type. Yeah. Um, which again, still, that's still more compelling than he was before. But still, there's a part of me, that part that loves Batman and the Outsiders back in the day, just again, you know, being 12, 13 years old or whatever it was when I was reading it. Uh, and that Jim Opera, uh, Jim Opera art, you know, just with the curly, curlyish hair uh, and, you know, firing the thrusters out of his hands or whatever. It just, yeah, there's always going to be a part of, even though he wasn't that interesting, he was fun. You know, he was, there was an innocence to him that's been removed. So yeah, a lot more storytelling potential for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Nice House on the Lake, uh, issue number nine from writer James Tynan the fourth. Alvaro Martinez Bueno on art, Jordi Belair on colors, and World Design does letters. This is an interesting issue. We get uh, a lot more insight into Walter himself, I feel like, uh, in terms of what he's doing. We know that he wiped everybody's memories when they, they just wouldn't go along with what he wanted them to do. And he, he switched a couple of the people that were, uh, you know, uh, one person was imprisoned and uh, off on their own in, in the one little house, uh, Reginald. And uh, when the rest of them discovered that, that him, that's when Walter decided to uh, wipe everybody's memories. Uh, and this time he didn't let them know that the world outside of where they're living has been destroyed, supposedly. And, and this time he's got Nora isolated because he, he seems to need somebody who kind of knows what's going on that he can use as kind of a sounding board. But I love that Nora stands up to, to Walter. She's like, look, clearly you want some justification for what you're doing. You say that if, you know, we all knew the truth, that we would side with you, we'd make the same decisions as you. You're offering us a way to stay alive when the rest of the human race is wiped out. But you've got to trust me. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me know what's going on. Uh, and, and I love the way that, that Tynan puts it. She says, look. I'm not going to pull the lever that kills everybody, right? Like you're, you're worried that if I know too much that I'm not going to agree with you and then the human race gets wiped out. But if you want me to really understand the situation you're in and why you're making the judgments you're making, you've got to let me see everything. You've got to let me see the lever. And you even got to give me the ability to pull that lever. You've got to give me the ability to wipe out everybody. Like if you really want to trust me, that's what you have to do if you really want justification that you're doing the right thing. So uh, I love that idea of this lever that, that can be pulled, that, you know, it's a metaphorical level lever, obviously. Um, but I love that, I, that idea. And Walter actually gives in and that's the cliffhanger we get at the, um, at the end of the issue. He's like, I can't tell you everything, but I'm going to show you something. Um, he's like, yeah, I can't give you everything, but I can give you something. And he takes her to this place and it's like completely pitch black. And she's like, there's nothing here. Uh, and he says, this is backstage. This is where I live. Um, and Walter's like, well, there's stuff here. It's just that your eyes and your mind can't, can't comprehend it, but he's about to show her something special. Uh, and we know we only have three issues to go. So, um, there's still so many questions about exactly what's going on here. <laughs> we know it was hinted at, um, previously a few issues ago that maybe, the rest of the world isn't beyond saving. Maybe it's possible that the, the world can be saved, um, that it hasn't all been destroyed. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot going on and I'm really, really enjoying the series. what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, just to add to your, uh, your summary of the narrative, uh, 
there's at least uh, there's well, five or six pages. A couple of them are double, at least one of which is double page spread. Where where Nora, who has actually been isolated by Walter to actually guide, give him some guidance or give him some advice, uh, Walter is letting Nora more into his into his world. Uh, but Nora has tipped off somebody else uh, through the looking glass, so to speak. And uh, there's another member of the household who at the end, when Nora goes into that secret room with Walter, uh, ends up uh, in the final panels sneaking into the room as well. So Walter, so Nora has managed to get one up on Walter. The tables are turning. And what makes this such an interesting issue is that Walter has always been strictly very much in control of everyone in the household. As soon as they become knowledgeable of what's going on, he erases their memory. But Walter can only erase their memory if he knows everything that they know. Or, But Nora has managed to convey some of the secrets to a number member of the household who is who Walter is not aware of. And this other member of the household is sneaking into that secret room with them. And Walter's not aware of it. So this cr- creates an interesting dynamic that... In the in the event that Walter mind wipes everyone's memory, he might not be mind wiping all of them, and so he's he's slipping. Walter is slipping. Walter is experiencing a lot of stress. He's an alien that wants to save all these these ten people on this island that that he he befriended on Earth over the course of thirty or so years, and it's falling apart. And is there a way to save the Earth? Is it really destroyed? What's really going on here? Tinian has hinted at it in through the narrative, and it's it's very well done. And I, I and the art is the art is just fantastic. I I just I, I so this is every now and then. Of course, we I read a comic book story that you know I just I want to I want to see on Amazon Prime or Netflix or or HBO Max. And <laughs> this is a prime example. I would love this. Just cries out. Can you imagine? In my mind, I'm trying to cast all the all the main characters of this narrative. I mean, I think of an all star cast. This was making awesome movie that you could conceivably do in a two and a half hour movie. I, I think this. I can't wait to see how this ends. This is the first comic. It doesn't matter. This was the first comic that I read when it popped up on the previews. I'm, this is my one, just clearly one of my favorites. I read this even before the Action Comics one. I'm loving Action Comics, but this is the first on my reads, my 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 read list when I get it. But I, I love this. I, I'm just, I'm loving what Tinian's doing with this. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's fantastic. So highest recommendation. Okay, last of the regular issues we're going to talk about. Uh, it's uh, speaking of annuals, Action Comics 2022 Annual Number One. A Tale of Two Titans. We get um, a story, uh, a childhood story of uh, of Clark Kent, and we also get a, they call it an origin of Mongol. Uh, I guess it's a partial origin in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson and Cy Spurrier. We have art by Dale Eaglesham and Ian Churchill. Colors are by Lee Luffridge, lettered by Dave Sharp. Uh, so give us a recap of this one, Rock. Well, you know, I'm I'm really curious to know what uh, you think of this because I because I know that I'm uh you're you're, you're I'm more of a fan than what uh, PKJ Philip Kennedy Johnson has been doing with the main Superman storyline. I thought this was this to me was felt like an amazing longer version of a story that we would normally see in a Superman Red and Blue anthology. You know, uh, because it it, it feels uh, I just. I thought this really, uh, th- this really tugged at the heartstrings in in a he in a very sort of uh, familiar formula. 
that we've seen before by many other writers, he uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson here is is essentially he's he's juxtaposo- juxtaposing the early childhood development of Clark Kent with the early childhood of Mongol, and and of course they couldn't be more different. But what what J- Philip Kennedy Johnson manages to do here is that he 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 frankly. Uh, somehow managed to surprise me because it was it was more complicated than just oh Clark Kent has really good parents and Mongo has very has a very bad mother and vice versa. This this was grounded in story. Uh, I mean, I was I was you know this is called a tale of two titans and titans they are Superman Superman's upbringing and Mongo's upbringing and I had just as much almost as much sympathy for Mongo. Uh, as I did for, for for Superman here, in terms of what you know, I had no idea. For example, that in, in a, I did not know. I or actually, I think it was mentioned before, but uh, I didn't realize that Mar- that Clark Kent's mother, uh, Martha, had had cancer uh, when she was younger. If that was maybe it was revealed in an earlier storyline, and I just missed it, but that was um, there's a you know it's. Clark Kent's early years, you know, he's dealing with a young uh, bully named Caleb, and Caleb is uh, has an abusive father. So Caleb takes out his aggressions on other children, and he's a new kid in class. And at one point, he takes out his aggression on a young Clark Kent, and his mother Martha obviously, you know, tells Clark to you know turn the other cheek and all that other jazz. And and it ends up with Caleb at one point ends ends up pushing uh, pushing Clark, and then his Martha gets pushed over, and her wig falls off, and. It, all of a sudden, it was like it really hit me. It it, uh, it hit me. Oh my God, she's undergoing chemotherapy, and uh, it was uh, really quite quite the moment. And it seemed to shock shock Clark. Clark was not aware that his mother was undergoing cancer treatment, and uh, just a really touching moment at the end of the Clark Kent story, where at the end, you know, Clark Clark encourages Caleb, telling Caleb the bully, you know, you know when they have a confrontation later on, you don't have to be like your father. You don't have to be like him. And uh, there's a very touching moment where at one point, it, as a way to try to get closer to his mom and make his mom feel better, there's a there's a, there's a image of young Clark Kent trying to cut his hair off so he could be bald like his mom to make his mom feel better. And he can't cut his hair off because it's invulnerable and he can't. And he's so frustrated. And it's really touching. And then it's reinf- that, that moment is reinforced at the end because unbeknownst to Clark, Clark's kindness uh, to Caleb, Caleb ends up at the hospital apologizing to Martha. And as a sign of solidarity to Martha, Caleb voluntarily shaved his own head. And it's something that Clark himself couldn't do. But that moment was so touching for for Martha. And, and it reinforced Martha's message to Clark and to the reader that, you know, you don't know the impact that an, a simple act of kindness can have, can pay dividends down the line in ways that you can't foresee. And that was just the Clark Kent story. Then you have the other story with Mongol. And the difference that, you know, Mongol's, you know, Mongol, uh, 
was uh, Mongol's mother was basically obviously she was she slept with the Mongol who who was got pregnant and then she was discarded and pushed off into the lands to Rome and 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 of course uh, she you know she wants to she wants to raise her son and she raises her son to to never protect a Mongol does not protect and but young Mongol's instinct is to protect his mother Mongol has Mongol was born with the instinct to protect his mother to help to protect. And it was exactly that instinct that was driven out of him by his mother. You don't protect me. And the mother betrayed that code by giving her life to protect Mongol at the end. And Mongol uh, would grow up always saying that his mother, her, his mother betrayed the code because she protected me. And, and then he grows up to take revenge upon his father and killing and become the Mongol who is by killing the Mongol who was. And it's just, just the, 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 egregious difference between those two stories it just reinforces how these two the difference that a mother could make uh, and there's not not a lot of focus on father here you know it's basically two mothers this is a story of a relationship of of, of two sons with their mother and it's it's uh, i thought this was excellent absolutely excellent i this was um uh, as much as I like Nice House on the Lake, which was my first comic that I read, Action Comics Annual here, this came to the top of the This was my favorite comic of the week by, by far. So I'm really curious to hear what you have to think, because I know that you not you haven't been necessarily a big fan of the uh, PKJ Warworld storyline. So what do you think? Yeah, I I mean, <laughs> it felt a little heavy-handed, right? It, it uh, felt like, like I get it, right? Superman's inspirational. He's my favorite character and what have you. And I appreciated that a lot of why Superman is who he is is because of, you know, Ma and Pa Kent. That's what I've always felt, uh, which is part of the reason I hate the Man of Steel movie. Um, so the, the PKJ does a great job of, of illustrating that here, right? But it also, man, it, it feels like I'm being beaten over the head with it <laughs> at times. Um, but I did, I, I did, for the most part, enjoy this. And I thought the art was fantastic. Um, as far as Martha Kent having cancer, I, I think it's been mentioned before. Like I, I vaguely recall, uh, I don't know that it's ever been a part of a, the story as much as it, as, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson uh, brings it in here, which I thought uh, was interesting as far as Mongol goes. Yeah. That's why I said it's sort of a, uh, an origin. I mean, we kind of got part of maybe the second half of Mongol's origin, uh, in an issue of action comics recently. And now this is kind of like. Let's let's see how we got to that point, right? Because that was sort of him being, uh, you know, a, a teenager and killing his father and taking over and what have you. And this is kind of, you know, earlier on formative years. And yeah, you're right. It's a complete 180 degree difference in the you know way mothers have raised their sons and has to you know obviously with culture and species and what, what have you. She's a war zone and you know mother's job is not to protect. Warzone's jobs not to protect. Like it's completely on the opposite of, um, of the way that uh, Ma Kent is raising John or uh, Clark rather. But it, it's like Philip Kennedy Johnson. He he's telling these stories in parallel to show us that Superman and Mongol are on opposite ends of of the spectrum. Right? They're they're kind of in a, in a lot of ways two sides of the same coin. I don't buy that. You know, that, that to me, like, I, I don't know if it's because Mongol came out, you know, so much later, decades and decades and decades later. I don't see Mongol as like the anti-Superman 
uh, in terms of, you know, all his values are the exact opposite or whatever. Is Mongol an interesting villain? Is he a formidable villain for Superman? Yes, he, he is that. Um, I think back to, you know, one of the greatest Superman stories, classic Superman annuals, actually, speaking of Superman annuals, of all time, and it's number 11, written by Alan Moore. Um, you know, what do you get for the man who has everything? And it's the Black Mercy Rose. And Superman gets, you know, caught up in this dreamlike world and, and ultimately rejects it. Um, that's Mongol, right? Machinations and plotting and whatever. But it, what's not working for me, as much as this was an interesting story, but what's not working for me is just this idea that PKJ is trying to set up Mongol as like the Superman villain. And I don't, I don't buy it. You know, I don't know. That's that part's not working for me. And as far as the, the war world story, I just feel like it's gone on a little bit too long. I'm ready for it to be over. At times it's been compelling at times, not so much. It feels like it's been dragging, but ultimately this is a very well-constructed story, especially with uh, the parallel storytelling and compare and contrast or whatever. But yeah, I think fundamentally for me though, it's just, it, it feels like he's trying to say that, you know, they're more, they're so alike in, in so many ways. And then, they're complete opposite in other ways. And so they are that two sides of the same coin. And that's the part that it falls apart for me because Mongol's never been that before. And it feels like in a lot of ways, PKJ is trying to retcon Mongol into being that. And I just don't see Mongol that way. So, um, but it is a very, very well-constructed story um, in, in in both instances, both telling the, the, the story and the emotion of the relationship between Mongol and his mother. And obviously, Clark Kent and, and his mom, there's some poignant moments that, that are, you know, fantastic. You know, you mentioned Caleb shaving his head and, you know, Clark unable to do it. Yeah. Uh, really, really great job. So uh, as far as does it rise all the way up to the top as my favorite, I, hmm, I, I think I got to give my nod to, um, to nice house on the lake actually. Uh, for a lot of the reasons that you that you said, uh, but it's close. I mean, you can't go wrong with either one. I think you should you should be reading both, right? You should be reading action comics and you should be reading Nice House on the Lake. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, few other books that are out this week in terms of uh, some collections. We've got uh, Batman Reptilian, which is written by uh, Garth Ennis with fantastic art by Liam Sharp. That has its collected uh, hardcover edition that's out this week. There is a Death and Return of Superman Omnibus for $150. It, it has it all, man, from the, the, the time that Doomsday first appeared all, all the way, you know, all those issues as he marches toward um, Metropolis to the death of Superman. And then all the, you know, four replacement Superman eventually leading to the return of the, the Superman that we know. So many, many, many pages for that one. If you're curious, if you've never read it, that's a great way to uh, to get it. I mean, it's yes, it is one hundred fifty dollars, but it's one thousand four hundred and eight pages. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of it's a lot of book for your uh, for your dollar. Yeah, the, uh, the, the only downside is that when I got a couple of those, I don't I don't like the middle because there's so many pages that when you, you sometimes you miss the full appreciation of the art and the double page spreads because you can't always see the. You know, because when you yeah. open it in the middle of it, you kind of miss some of the pages because there's just too many pages all in one. But yeah. it's cool to oh, own, though, it is. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's not like you've got to, you, you, and you, it's, it's not something that you can like just read. To, like you've got to be sitting down with the yeah. thing in your lap because it weighs like fifty pounds. Exactly. You know, you Kill can't yourself. just. Oh, I'm gonna sit here and hold it with one hand like a paperback <laughs> while I drink my coffee. No, that's not. That's you not mean the way. Uh, whiskey, actually. <laughs> yeah, whiskey or, or what have you. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. But still, super cool, super cool to have. Yeah. Uh, we also have a couple of. Uh, well, actually, there's another omnibus, the Teen Titans by Jeff Johns, which is a beloved and critically acclaimed run that has a hardcover omnibus as well that's coming out. Um, that one is uh, also fourteen hundred pages, fourteen hundred and forty pages to be exact. So uh, art by Mike McCone and uh, Tony S. Daniel, Tom Grummet. There's fantastic art in, throughout that run. It's, it's a really great run. Um, and then the, the, last, uh, the last two collections, there's a hardcover and a trade paperback. And it's volume one of Superman, Son of Kal-El from uh, artist John Tim is written by uh, Tom Taylor. So you can choose your poison there. You can get the hardcover. You can get the soft cover, whatever works for you. Uh, that one's only 152 pages. Again, it's just a, you know, the, the usual trade collecting uh, six issues. So those are the other books that are out from DC this week, the other collections, uh, as well as I think I mentioned it at the top. Uh, there is also a uh, Batman Beyond the White Knight uh, reprint that collects the first two. They're calling it a showcase edition. It's just like a regular monthly comic. It's not hardcover or anything, but it does collect the first two issues. So it's 60 pages because it's got a couple of pinups and some of the variant covers and whatnot, a little bit of back matter. Um, but it's the two regular 20-page issues, brings you up to 40, and then there's some, some other back matter and, and art in it. So uh, I'm, I am enjoying that um, that story maybe more so than any previous Sean Gordon Murphy-verse uh, Batman story. I think it's the best one yet. So if you're curious and want to get caught up, because I think the first two issues sold out, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So you can get them both there in in, uh, in one book. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for this episode. Anything you got coming out this week, Rocky, that you want to tease the folks with? Uh, no, I, I wish I've just been I, I increasingly busy at work, and we just got a new roof, and we're doing yard work, and uh, I got a yeah, trials good. trials this week. So yeah, I could. It's it's um, it's a miracle I find time to do this with you this week, but I'm glad I did. It's always always it's always fun to review comics with you, Jason. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I likewise am, am super busy, done traveling, I hope. So just getting caught up on everything that kind of was left to the wayside at the office while I was gone. Uh, and then hopefully once I get caught up with that, we'll be bringing back Spawn Daily and uh, hopefully we'll get some interviews in the pipeline. Like this is the first time since I can remember I don't have any interviews lined up. Like when I look at my calendar, there's nothing there. It feels very strange. But I've been traveling for six weeks and I, I didn't want to schedule any because I just didn't know. Uh, and plus being on the road makes it uh, a lot harder. So uh, we'll have some other uh, content coming up for you soon, though. I did attend the uh, Phoenix Fan Fusion, as it's now called, formerly Phoenix uh, Comic Con and then Phoenix Fan Fest. That's last weekend. Didn't know what to expect. It had been three years. I think even the city of Phoenix didn't know what to expect. I don't think they expected much because for the first time ever, they scheduled, they had the, the Diamondbacks, the, the Major League Baseball team, they had them scheduled for home games at the same time as the convention. They never do that. They've never done that. Like in the 10 years, the convention has been downtown at the convention center. They always have the diamondbacks on the road because huh. there won't be any parking. There won't be enough parking. You can't have, you know, thousands of attendees to the baseball game and thousands of attendees to the comic convention at the same time. There won't be enough parking. Yeah. Well, they did it this weekend. And guess what? 
<laughs> there the wasn't enough parking. <laughs> the convention exploded. Like it was, it was so busy. Every retailer, every artist I talked to, they were over the moon with how many people were there. The people I talked to were super excited to be back. Some of them had been holding on to their badges, you know, oh, wow. or, uh, tickets or whatever for two years, you That's know, waiting wonderful. for it to come back. Um, but yeah, the bad part was there was no parking. Some people, I heard horror stories of people waiting in, in a line in their car for like two hours just to get into the parking garage. So <laughs> I didn't have an issue, but I kind of know downtown pretty well and the secret spots or what have you. But uh, it's exactly what the convention needed because I, I think, I think I've heard rumors that he's been trying to sell. Uh, and then the debacle with the, you know, the, the, the crazy fan or whatever he was that, that wanted to harm Jason David Frank and attendance went down because he had to raise prices and there's metal detectors and whatever. Right. And for the past two, two times he held it, 2019 and 2018, for the first time in the history of the con, attendance went down. Well, it went way up this year. Um, so hopefully if he does want to sell it, that shows Reed Pop or Fan Expo, whoever is interested in buying it, that yes, this is a feasible show. It can be successful and uh, they can bring somebody in who, not that it's not a fun show or they don't know how to run it or anything, but you know, when you get a, a company whose sole job is to run these conventions and run them very successfully and have relationships with artists and celebrity guests and what have you, uh, you know, I think that's only to the benefit uh, and, and it can only increase next year. Cause the one thing about this Phoenix uh, comic-con this year, Phoenix fan fusion, the guest list was a little sparse. Um, Cause again, I think they just didn't know what to expect. So they weren't going to splurge for a bunch of guests and then have hardly anybody there to pay for them. So, mm. uh, so anyway, I'll be doing a roundup of that coming up later this week uh, as well as our usual uh, new comics Wednesday episode. I, so that's going to do it for this episode, well, everybody. I just, I just want to, I have to quickly yeah. say that uh, in uh, it's good to hear that the Megacon was so good. Uh, it's coming out of the pandemic. I think things are picking up. Go see Top Gun Maverick. I, I saw it last oh, yeah. night. I love it. Fantastic movie. Uh, I'm glad Tom Cruise and Paramount decided to, to wait two years to release it through the pandemic. It was the right move. I, I love it. I'm a, I'm a 50-something guy, and I absolutely loved it. I have, I've, uh, I've cosplayed as, uh, as Top Gun before, gone to Top Gun parties, and as somebody who's – that was a major point of my uh, formative years, uh, you know, feeling the need for speed, that love and feeling and all that. Uh, talk to me, Goose, all that jazz. Great movie. I encourage everybody to go out and see it. And uh, congratulations to Tom Cruise. I just had to say that. <laughs> yeah, his biggest opening ever. That was fantastic. I watched it as well. My wife and I went on, on Saturday night. We, we both really enjoyed it. it yeah, 55% of the audience that went were over the age of 40. So uh, it's a, And they're, they're hoping because it's, it's a big sign because most of the 40-year-olds plus uh, where they they were they feared we're staying away from theaters and yep. just streaming now, and so this is they consider it maybe a sign, you know, maybe maybe the movie has saved the movie going experience for uh, for the forty plus crowd. So uh, and 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 interestingly enough, thirty five percent of the movie going crowd are under the age of thirty five, and it was thirty six years ago that the so they weren't even born when the first Top Gun came out. So <laughs> that's that's so wonderful that they're going to see a sequel that most people weren't even born to when the original came out. That's quite a feat. I think what a feat. Yeah, yeah, it is. It shows the power of Tom Cruise for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, say what you want about his, you know, his, him personally. The guy, yeah, he he knows how to make a uh, fantastic movie. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, everybody, don't forget to uh, head over to YouTube if you don't already subscribe. Look for Rocky's channel. It's Comic Space Boom exclamation point. Like this video. Ring the notification bell so you know when new uh, content comes out, and be sure to subscribe. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time, be sure you also subscribe to the Comic Source 
on your favorite podcasting app or platform. That way you don't miss out on any of the audio only content that comes out. So once again, great week of DC comics, Rocky's favorite was action comics annual. I'm giving my nod to nice house on the lake. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We appreciate it as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.